Executive Director of the Bush Institute, David J. Kramer, isn't just our expert on everything Ukraine and Russia. He's one of the world's foremost experts on the region. We catch up with him to get his take on the largest war in Europe since World War II, on Vladimir Putin, and why it's so important for the United States to continue to support the Ukrainian people. Unless we want to recognize the illegal takeover by Russia of Crimea, unless we want to set a precedent where we allow these kinds of abuses to occur, we have to get behind Ukraine's efforts to regain control over all of its territory. We also discussed the Bush Institute's recent release of policy recommendations on a number of topics. And welcome David to Texas and hear how he's adjusting to life in Dallas. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Our guest today on The Strategist is David J. Kramer, the newly minted executive director of the George W. Bush Institute. Before joining us, he was at the at Florida International University in Miami. And before that, uh, he spent several years in D.C. as the Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy and Human Rights, uh, among many other other roles. And so we are, we are thrilled to have his wisdom here at the Bush Institute, which we are going to be imparting a little bit here today. David, thank you so much. Great to be with you, Andrew. And uh, uh, not that newly minted. I started here a little over a year ago uh, as managing director for global policy and then took on the executive director role in October. So glad we we're able to finally do this. So right off the bat, you're already saying I'm wrong about things. I didn't say that, but you did. <laughs> but yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, welcome, welcome to Dallas, where it's either 100 degrees or 20 degrees. Missing Miami already. Yeah. There's we usually get a nice week of nice weather um, in April for about about a week, so something to look forward to. I heard it was two days, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's let's talk current events a little bit. You're our foremost expert here on uh, on Ukraine. Um, and what's going on over there? It's a little complicated these days, but the the bottom line is that the invasion that started February 24th, which is actually the second time Russia invaded, it, it did in 2014 the first time, but this second invasion has been a total disaster for Russia. It has also taken a horrible toll on Ukraine. There have been thousands of Ukrainians killed, millions displaced, uh, uncalculable damage to the economy in Ukraine. Um, but the Ukrainians have, have been uh, on the offense lately. They have really pushed back. They succeeded in preventing the Russians from taking the capital. Kiev, the, uh, President Zelensky has done a heroic job of leading the uh, Ukrainians through this. Uh, the Ukrainians have shown tremendous bravery, uh, tremendous determination, resilience, and they have fought a, a, a real hard battle. They need our help. They, the Ukrainians, need our help. And so the provision of this military assistance, the latest being the decision to provide the Leopard tanks from Germany and from other countries in the United States to provide M1A1 Abram tanks is a really important decision. The sooner we get those tanks to the Ukrainians, the better, because then they can use them to continue to regain control of their territory. And we have to remember that Putin started this for no reason whatsoever. Um, totally unprovoked, totally unjustified, and Russian forces under Putin's direction have been engaging in war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. I think we can we can safely say, uh, tragically, that Russia has been engaged in genocide against the Ukrainian people. And the Ukrainians have just shown tremendous heroism and courage in pushing back. I think Ukrainian victory is not only possible, Ukrainians think 
victory is possible. 85% of Ukrainians in a recent survey said they are opposed to any territorial concessions to Russia. They think they can win. We need to get behind that thinking and help them win. Our policy should not just be to help Ukraine defend itself. It shouldn't just be we are there as long as it takes. It should be a stated policy, in my view, for Ukraine to win, defeat Russia, drive Russian forces off of Ukrainian territory. That's what victory means, uh, and make sure that Russia is never able to do this again. And that includes like Crimea and the things taken not just not just recently, but but all the way back. 2014 is when this started with the illegal annexation of Crimea. Uh, Ukraine decided then not to fight over Crimea. They, the Russians then uh, did go into the Donbass region. The Ukrainians did fight there. More than 14,000 Ukrainians have died since 2014, before the latest reinvasion in, in uh, 2022. And so it wasn't just a little conflict there. There was a lot of people who lost their lives in that previous battle. And so, yes, uh, regaining control of Ukrainian territory, in, in, in my view, means taking the Crimean Peninsula back. It was Ukrainian territory. Russia recognizes it as Ukrainian territory. There is an agreement between Russia and Ukraine that recognized the territory of Ukraine and its sovereignty. And so uh, regaining control of Crimea is something I think we should support. The Ukrainians think they are capable of doing it. They've already been launching attacks against Russian bases in Crimea. So it isn't as if this would be a whole new stage. It, it would be a battle. There's no question about it. But uh, if, unless we want to recognize the illegal takeover by Russia of Crimea, unless we want to set a precedent where we allow these kinds of abuses to occur, we have to get behind Ukraine's efforts to regain control over all of its territory. You touched on it there a little bit of, of, of why this is important. But I think there, there's, there's perception in some, in some corners that the U.S. should – mind its own business essentially why why is it important that we that we engage in this in this war that's happening so so far away from us yeah that's a critical question europe was the source of two world wars in the last century this is the greatest security crisis on the european continent since the end of world war ii if we allow russia to get away with this Russia will feel emboldened and likely try its chances against other countries, including potentially NATO member states. Ukraine, unfortunately, is not a member of NATO, so there is not secure, uh, Article 5 security guarantees, which would mean an attack on Ukraine would be an attack considered on all. Uh, but if Russia got away with what it's doing in Ukraine, it could launch moves against uh, the Baltic states, against Poland. The other part of this is China is watching this very carefully. Yeah. And so how we respond, how we help the Ukrainians, I think will have a major impact on President Xi's thinking as he looks at Taiwan and a possible takeover of, of that island democracy. Uh, the whole world is watching how we respond to this. And, and let's also remember um, what the Ukrainians are doing is asking us to provide military assistance. They're not asking for our soldiers to be on the ground fighting this battle for them. They need our military assistance. We can provide it. We should provide it. Um, and if we can help Ukraine win, that would deal a huge setback, not only to Putinism and authoritarianism, uh, but possibly a huge blow to the effort to roll back democracy in various parts of the world. Everybody has their theory, and I'd love to hear what you think. Why is Putin doing this? Like, what's, what's, what's in it for him? Putin's been in power for 
more than two decades. Uh, started as prime minister in 99, became acting president, and then elected president in 2000. He, he's obviously been in power way too long, and he's one of the most corrupt uh, uh, people in the world. And the more corrupt one becomes, the more authoritarian one becomes. And so we have to recognize that a successful Ukraine, which means a Ukraine looking more to the West, toward NATO, the European Union, a Ukraine that is moving in a more democratic direction, a Ukraine that's trying to address the problem of corruption, that kind of Ukraine is a threatening model to Putin. Uh, he doesn't want Russians to look at Ukraine and say, well, if Ukrainians can do that, why can't we Russians do that? Uh, so a successful, thriving, democratic Ukraine, unfortunately, is a threat to Putin's corrupt authoritarian system in Russia. And so I think he – it also reflects a terrible misunderstanding that Putin and the Kremlin have of their neighbors. They don't understand that invading countries doesn't win over the populations in these countries. Invading them tends to repel them, tends yeah. to unite them, yep. and bring them even more against what Russia is trying to accomplish. Early on, a lot of the U.S. sanctions were aimed at kind of the, the oligarchs that would pull their support of Putin theoretically. What is, what is the – what is his support like in, on, in his home country right now? Very hard to tell. It's hard to conduct true surveys in a country like Russia. When a stranger calls you up and asks you, what do you think of Putin? Um, I'm not sure if I were in that situation on the receiving end of that call, I would give an honest answer. Most people don't respond. Um, so conducting surveys in a place like Russia is hard to do. That said, there have been pockets of resistance, but the regime has cracked down so brutally against any protest. People using the word war get arrested for that because it's supposed to be a special military operation. Um, we, we've seen Ilya Yashin, uh, an opposition figure, thrown in jail, accused of, of espionage and sentenced to nearly 10 years in prison. They make examples of people who dare to protest. Uh, they will arrest people holding up a blank piece of paper because that implies support for Ukraine in opposition to the war. It's an ugly situation inside Russia, and we can't forget that. And it is at the root of this whole crisis, which is the more authoritarian and corrupt Russia has become, the more Putin then projects onto other, others in, in places like Ukraine. Belarus, where we've seen almost a de facto takeover, uh, Lukashenko is so dependent on Putin for staying in power that he has essentially sacrificed Belarus's independence and, and sovereignty. Uh, we see pressure on Moldova. Of course, Georgia was the first country that uh, Russia invaded under Putin in 2008. So this is consistent behavior that we see. And, and while there are not huge movements against the war, um, I don't think there's a lot of support. And we also saw, by the way, a mass exodus, maybe 700,000 to a million Russians when Putin ordered his mobilization last September to call up Russian males to join this campaign. There's talk that there'll be a second mobilization order coming soon. And while I think probably most Russians who are able to leave have already done so, he, he's essentially treating them like cannon fodder. He doesn't care what happens to these right. people. He just wants to overwhelm Ukraine with numbers. And the problem is, unlike uh, he just gave a, a speech on Thursday commemorating the, the stand in Stalingrad 80 years ago against the Nazis. The Nazis invaded Stalingrad and the Soviet people, which includes Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians and others, defended Stalingrad just like they defended the Soviet Union, pushed back on the invading Nazi forces. The difference here, it's the Russians who are invading Ukraine. So Putin's comparison yesterday, uh, a colleague, friend of mine, Mike McFall, called it disgusting. Couldn't agree more.
What, so you mentioned earlier China and they're, that they're watching closely. You know, that's Russia's eastern front. How uh, Are we worried that they're going to get more actively involved in, in, in support of Russia or is that, are they keeping a distance? Got to remember that President Putin traveled to Beijing, uh, I think, February 1st of last year, the start of the Beijing Olympics. And the two leaders signed an agreement that was described as friendship without limits. Turns out, I think there are limits. I think the Chinese are not happy with what Putin has done. They claim that they weren't given a heads up. Hard for me to believe that. Although it was obviously a closely held decision to invade the country, to invade Ukraine. Um, The Chinese have not, so far at least, provided military assistance to Russia, much to Moscow's chagrin. Um, President Xi might be visiting Moscow soon. They have met since the uh, Russia launched the invasion um, for meetings in Central Asia. Um, but uh, the, the Chinese, I think, do value the relationship with the United States. They don't want to run into problems on the sanctions regime that we and our allies have imposed. And so uh, I, I don't imagine the Chinese are all that thrilled about what's happening. The Chinese, I think, also don't want to bet on a loser. Yeah. And so far, Putin and Russia don't look like they're winning this war. Right. They th- I'm sure they thought that this would be over in, in days. And here we are a year later still still going, which is, which is tragic because with each day comes more, more lives lost. But at the same time, it just, it does show that this is, everybody's making it hard on Putin when hopefully that this will have long-term repercussions for him. Do you think it will? Hard to say. I, I, and, I, and I'm not sure we should worry about that too much. Really? Uh, why is that? I, I don't think our, it's not our business to find an off-ramp for Putin. He created this problem. That's his problem to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so what I would argue is we should be focused on helping Ukraine win and defeating Russian forces. And whatever comes of that is for Russians to decide. Um, our, our focus needs to be standing with the Ukrainians who, who are so courageously fighting for their land, for their freedom, for their lives. And a Russian defeat will have implications. That's Putin's issue to deal with. It's beyond our control. Um, but we also shouldn't be paralyzed by fear of what might come after Putin. We know what Putin brings to the right. table. Right. It's ugly. It, it, it's tragic. It's a threat. Um, the Post-Putin might be worse. Post-Putin might be better, might be the same. We, we shouldn't worry about that. What we need to do is focus on our objectives right now, which should be Ukrainian victory. And my last question on this, but it's something that always is at the back of my mind, is and I, you heard this a lot in the news early on. I've heard it less thrown about less recently. Is is the threat of Putin escalating to nuclear weapons? Um, what's your What's your take on that, and how likely is that? Putin backs down in the face of power and strength. Um, in In November 2015, the Turks shot down a Russian military jet because it violated Turkish airspace uh, when it was operating in Syria. Russia didn't do anything in response. Mm -hmm. 2018, uh, this mercenary outfit, the Wagner force run by this loathsome Yevgeny Prigozhin, um, threatened American troops in Syria. We warned them to back off. They didn't. And our planes shot uh, shot at and killed between two and 400 Wagner mercenary forces. Russians didn't even say anything. Hmm. So when we show strength, Putin backs down. The Russians have been issuing all sorts of threats that if if the West does X in helping Ukraine, they'll do Y. Well, guess what? We've been doing X for a long time. The Russians have not done Y. I don't think Putin is suicidal. I don't think Russian generals are suicidal. I also think they realize that using a tactical nuclear weapon will cause 
terrible harm and damage to Ukrainians. It actually may kill many Russians who are on the ground there too. It won't change the military situation on the ground. Ukrainians will will just push through it and uh, continue their campaign. So I, I the whole talk about using nuclear weapons and Russia has been explicit in, in saying it would is to get us to back off our support for Ukraine. We have to, again, stay focused on on the clear objective of helping Ukraine win. Yep. You know, I think to veer a little bit from that, I think it's interesting talking to you. Not to get armchair psychologists over here, but you clearly have a strong sense of right and wrong and justice. So I'm sure Putin and his actions just, just stand out. Uh, I, I wrote and published a book in 2017 called Back to Containment, Dealing with Putin's Regime, um, based on my experiences uh, in the State Department during President Bush's administration all eight years, based on my experiences out of government. Um, I have viewed Putin as an existential threat, first to his own people, uh, given the, how critics wind up dead, murdered, uh, defenestrated. Um, uh, he's a threat to his neighbors. He's a threat to us. This talk about using nuclear weapons can't be dismissed entirely. Right. And it, right. it's, it's threatening. Yeah. Um, and so I have been of the view that Putin is a threat, someone we cannot have normal relations with. And uh, I think after February 24th last year, um, a lot of other people who were holding out hope that we could have normalized relations with Russia, even after the first invasion of Ukraine in 2014, are being proven wrong. And, and so uh, to me, this is um, – it's a shame it took this second invasion of Ukraine to wake up a lot of the world to realize um, that our problem is very deep when it comes to dealing with the current Russian leadership. So when, uh, obviously we can, we can tell, listening to you, you're definitely a Ukraine expert, but you're the executive director of the Bush Institute now. The, we are, you are steering our ship, um, and I'm excited about that personally. Uh, I'd love to know kind of what your, what your vision for, for the Bush Institute is and what you're, what you're hoping to accomplish. Well, I'm I'm thrilled to be here and to be with such a, a terrific team. Um, my predecessor, Holly Kuzmich, left the Institute in terrific shape. So I'm very fortunate to come into a situation where I don't need to launch a, an overhaul or a revolution here by any means. Um, Holly handed things off in, in really strong shape. We've got a great team um, where we have focus on domestic issues that include immigration, veterans and military families, education and economic growth and opportunity. Uh, we have a tremendous leadership program that uh, we, well, on the presidential leadership scholars, we joined forces with the Clinton Foundation, LBJ and George H.W. Bush um, for a unique opportunity for it's usually about 50, 60 uh, scholars every year to get immersed and have a personal leadership uh, project that they focus on and just to have an opportunity to interact with each other. Our global team, um, and Igor Kreston has just come on board as our new managing director for global policy, a great addition to us, a great experience on the Hill, uh, looks at freedom and democracy issues, looks at global health, which is very important uh, to us and, and to President and Mrs. Bush, uh, and also women's advancement. And so uh, we, we're only about 45 people in the Institute, but we pack a big wall up here. And I think uh, these days in particular, with the hyper-polarized and politicized environment that we live in, 
um, people do appreciate the thoughtful and sane and sensible analysis and recommendations that we produce. And um, we, we being outside the Beltway, I think, is also an advantage. Being here in Dallas um, enables us to stay in touch, if you will, with uh, the rest of the country, perhaps more than organizations that are located inside the Beltway. You know, I know that's one of my favorite things about having been here is that I didn't realize when I started there was such a place that is that just likes good ideas. It doesn't matter who who makes the idea. We're not worried about labels and and left and right and everything else. It's what's a good idea and what's gonna what do we think is gonna work? And and I and I love that that element of it. Is that were you surprised to see that when you got here? Well, I'm gonna say I, I've worked. You know, I'm pretty getting up there in years. Um, no. I've worked at a lot of places, no. and uh, I I want to also emphasize this is a great place to work. Uh, the tone is set by President and Mrs. Bush. It, it's a place that really takes the welfare and happiness of the staff uh, to heart. Um, and I have to say, I, I'm a newbie to Dallas. I've been here now about a year. People here are really nice. Um, yeah, you know, coming, I'm, I'm a Massachusetts native. I lived in DC for 24 years. I lived in Miami for five years. So this is quite a refreshing change in that respect. Uh, we can tell you're from, you were from there when you went by saying clam chowder, try that. Clam chowder. Or, yeah. Yes. <laughs> or, uh, when I used to teach, I talked about how Churchill understood Stalin's interest in having a warm water port. Uh, <laughs> that is. And, yeah. I don't think my students did either. Um, and, um, the weather here is not ideal. Uh, it's, I miss Miami weather, but well, you know, you get used to it. You know, it's, it, Yes, sometimes it's 20, sometimes it's 100, and you never quite know which one it's going to be on any given day. But we like to call that the the pleasant surprises that you get in life. They are surprises. I'll leave pleasant out of it. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the Bush Institute just put out uh, a series of policy recommendations. That it's, it's one of the, the things that we're always excited to do as a new Congress uh, settles in. When, when you look at these and you look at what, what you know, you hope our lawmakers accomplish in the next couple of years. What what really stands out to you as, as saying, boy, I, I, I really, really hope they focus on this? So we cover a range of issues. We cover um, education. We cover immigration. We cover uh, freedom and democracy. We cover veterans issues. Uh, we cover uh, disinformation. We cover uh, global health. And we cover women's issues in these policy briefs. I think 12 in all. And look, they, they revolve around the four themes on which we focus, which is freedom, opportunity, accountability, and compassion. And we believe that it's important, for example, that the United States be an open and welcoming society. Um, we're recording this on Friday. And so just today, the jobs report came out 3.4% unemployment, which is a low we haven't seen in decades. That underscores, though, we need migrant labor here. Um, and we should be welcoming people into our country who come in legally. There's also a need for border security. We have to address that, too. We have to address the root problems of, of immigration into the United States, helping countries to our south uh, who are suffering from uh, terrible uh, uh, drug gangs and, and corruption and other problems, lack opportunity, so helping, helping address that side as well. Uh, veterans and military families are an important uh, it's an important and an issue 
issue so important to us here, um, helping veterans transition from their military service back into civilian life, also recognizing the tremendous value they bring, uh, whether it's uh, from being in uh, nursing or medical field in, in the military, helping to ease the licensing transfer so that people can go from the military service and fill needs that we have here in the United States, uh, whether it's nursing or teaching or other opportunities. Um, veterans can also be a, a great tool for recruiting into the military. We have a volunteer uh, military. And so veterans' experiences in that, I think, can also help maintain our, our security and make sure that we meet our needs. Um, education, we believe in testing, 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 and making sure that we thoroughly evaluate how students are progressing to make sure they are receiving the kind of education they need once they finish to then either go into the labor force or to pursue college and, and university studies. Um, and we believe in empowering those closest to the students uh, so that there's not uh, micromanagement from high levels, um, but empowerment of those uh, principals, superintendents, and teachers themselves, and making sure that parents are kept abreast of how their children are doing in school. Uh, we've got briefs on, on disinformation, which is a problem both domestically and coming in from overseas, uh, where there needs to be greater attention paid to making sure that people know where the news is coming from. They don't just rely on social media or on one source, but if they hear something that sounds, that seems pretty unbelievable, it might well be unbelievable yeah. because it may not be true. Do a little research. Exactly. Yep. Uh, invest in local journalism. The, uh, these uh, uh, media deserts, uh, as Bill McKenzie, who wrote that policy brief, talks about, are doing some real damage to our country. Um, we've got uh, a brief on the importance of democracy and freedom and how the United States needs to play a leadership role in supporting activists and advocates around the world who are trying to advance the cause of freedom and democracy, particularly at a time where the authoritarian states have been on the march, pushing back against us, trying to undermine our democracy. China holding itself up is a, a preferable model when, of course, it isn't. Um, but we, we need to do a better job in showing leadership on this. Of course, uh, the freedom agenda in President Bush's administration is the reason we are so passionate about that as well. Uh, global health, we've got some briefs on this. Um, uh, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. This is the 20th anniversary since that program was launched. President Bush announced it in his State of the Union speech in January 2003. Um, we'll be marking the anniversary, in fact, with an event in D.C. Uh, coming up later this month. Um, this is a program that has saved 25 million lives. It is a data-driven project. It is a project that involves public-private partnerships, um, and it is probably the most transformational foreign assistance program in U.S. history. Um, we have uh, another one on the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which was launched uh, 19 years ago. Next year will be the 20th anniversary. Also an innovative way of helping other countries through through assistance. Um, and women's advancement. Uh, we, we can't uh, survive when half the population in certain countries is deprived of basic human rights. Afghanistan is, is arguably the most blatant example of that, where women and girls are being deprived of their rights, including uh, the right to an education. Um, so we need to take a, a stronger stance and help try to empower women, not just in Afghanistan, but around the world where they are not treated as equal citizens. We also have a report on corruption 
dysfunction and kleptocracy, which is a hugely important issue. Uh, we've got a new line of work on this um, where we're trying to address not only the problem of corruption in other countries, but to make sure that we here in the United States do not enable that kind of uh, activity. Uh, corruption is a big export from some countries, but if we do not import corruption, then corruption has nowhere to go but to stay within the borders. So it's, it, that issue is a really important one that we're going to bring more attention to. You know, one of the things I love about these policy briefs is that is, I feel like they all come from a place that is, it's, America is a great place. There are things we can do better, and we're going to get there. And, and there's, there's an optimism to them that, that I think runs throughout these halls. Is that something that, that you've seen? That, and and I, think you, I think you add to that. Well, I don't know if I do, but uh, let me just say that um, <laughs> your question gets at one other part that I, I should mention, which is we're launching a new uh, area of work called Strengthening Our Democracy. Uh, we started this last May. We did a, an event in partnership with the uh, Partnership for American Democracy focused on elections. We wanted to demonstrate that the United States actually has a good history of conducting decent elections. Uh, people can actually have confidence in our ability to poll conduct workers. elections. Those poll workers are good, hardworking people. We, we had some of those on our stage here in Dallas, and uh, they're under tremendous pressure and threats in some cases, um, and, and yet they are, they are doing their, their job every single day. And so Americans should feel that they can have confidence in our elections. Um, but it also, uh, this, this whole line of work reminds us we are still striving toward a more perfect union. We are not perfect. Um, the, we were founded on two original sins, slavery and denial of women uh, to be equal citizens. We went through uh, some difficult history in, in correcting those two mistakes. And that is, I think, the fundamental feature of our democracy, which is when we see things are not right, we can take corrective measures. And so making sure that we um, don't take for granted these rights that we have as Americans, but also to re remember that how we conduct ourselves has an impact on other people around the world. People still look to us for all of our sh uh, shortcomings and, and challenges. They still look to us as that shining beacon on a hill. Um, and, and so we have to make sure that we live up to that while, while recognizing, look, we have to get our house in order here in the United States, but there's also no pause button for us to hit and ask the rest of the world, please give us time while we get our house in order. We have to get our house in order while helping other people around the world. And that's why the briefs on, on democracy are so important to make sure we do that. And we have the capacity to do it. We have the capacity to do great things. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We are a... A, the most powerful country in the world in every sense of the term. And um, how we conduct ourselves will have huge reverberations around the world. Um, and um, we, we've got a great history, not again, not perfect, but a great history. And uh, we have a great future. So I think, you know, I'd like to wrap by getting to know David Kramer a little better and your experience. Time to go. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is when it gets fun. Your experience in Texas so far. We talked about it a little bit. Apparently, okay, so you're not a fan of our weather. I, I get that. We, we, it, it has its ups and downs, a few too many ups and then surprising downs. What about, uh, what about our food? What do you think of the food so far? Food's good. like the food. Um, 
It is a Cowboys city, um, and I, right. I respect that. Yeah, but Dallas I've, Cowboys. Dallas Cowboys, yeah. yes. Um, I respect that, but don't belong to it. Fair. Uh, I still am a Patriots and Red Sox fan, so sorry for those who I've just offended. Including myself. But including you, but we'll look well, past that, that was intended, but to the others, <laughs> fair it enough, wasn't fair intended. Um, but uh, no, as I said, the people here are super nice, and uh, it's been a very warm welcome uh, since arriving here. And um, still getting to know the place. Uh, it is big, uh, big it's state. Sprawling. It is sprawling. It's a big state, and everything here is rather large. So yeah, it takes a while to get from point A to point B because it's not. It's not very dense. It it does. And while I'm not a beachgoer, I've never lived away from the ocean in my life until moving here. So not being near an ocean is also an interesting have experience. You, have you visited White Rock Lake yet? I have not. It is a lovely body of water. It's not okay. quite as big as an ocean. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have any beaches per se, but it is a body of water. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something. My bathtub is a body of water, <laughs> but anyway, yes. Uh, what about our, uh, our, our roads and highways? How's the traffic treating you so far? Next question. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have anything nice to say? I mean, I'm, saying look, at all. I'm from Boston where we have, a, I think, a bum rap on driving. We're, we're very good drivers. We're just very rude about it. Um, <laughs> Here, it's both rude and not very good. So getting used to it, though. Haven't been in an accident yet. Yeah. Knock on wood. Luckily, you've got a short commute, right? I do. I do. (laughs) Um, You know, I think I I would wrap with – I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but we do it on – at the end of most of the episodes with the strategist. And so if you've listened on your way in, you would know this is coming. If you haven't listened, then you're going to look surprised. And so this is going to be a bit of a tell. Um, What are we not talking enough about as a country that we, we should be talking about more? Um, civility. Uh, I, I think we have lost our understanding of how important it is to be kind to each other, to be courteous to each other, to disagree with each other by all means, disagree vigorously, in fact, but don't treat the other person as an enemy. Um, don't treat the other person as a traitor. Um, and so I think if we can, and I don't mean to have rose-colored glasses on our past. Um, there have been some nasty episodes we've had, um, but um, we're all Americans, but we're also really different. I mean, that's the beauty of this country. And so I just wish that um, we could see our political leaders demonstrate and lead by example by showing more civility there. Um, I, I do worry about stirring people up, demonizing uh, people who disagree. Um, that can become scary. It can become deadly. And, and so um, I, I really think that we have to focus a little more on... on it, it sounds corny, I know, but just treating people like you'd want to be treated yourself. There's something uh, somebody said about the golden rule, isn't there? There is indeed. David, thank you so much for doing this. I hope I hope that this went okay. I, hey, you passed that test. Sounds like you didn't you didn't pause there. We didn't edit out any pause. So um, I'm glad that clearly you're a listener. So we appreciate that. And, and uh, I hope we can do this again because we only touched the surface of, of a lot of different subjects. And I'd like to do it again and, and dive into a different one next time. It's been fun, Andrew. Thank you very much. And uh, your job is still safer. For now. For, exactly. <laughs> well, I, we haven't hit our email yet this morning, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> Thanks, David. Thanks, Andrew. Learn more about the war in Ukraine, the Bush Institute policy briefs, and more at www.bushcenter.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please tell your friends and leave us a note on social media. We are at the Bush Center on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Thank you for listening.